0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to Stories from the Field presented by Search Kings. On this podcast, we will focus on sharing stories by home service leaders and provide you with their secrets to success.
1: Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Search Kings Presents Stories from the Field, where we help home service business owners learn how to grow, scale their home service business. An interesting episode for all of you today. We're going to take a little bit of a turn and look towards, for some, the end of the line when it's time to exit your home service business. We're joined here by Patrick Lang, the owner of Business Modification Group. Patrick, been in the business of buying and selling HVAC companies for over 15 years. You bought and sold your own, my understanding is, and we're super excited to have you here. Thanks for joining us, Patrick. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm I'm happy to be here. All right. We're also joined by Sebastian on the Search Kings team, who's joining us for the first time on the podcast. Thanks for joining us, Sebastian.
0: Pleasure
1: to be here. So, Patrick, our audience is very much HVAC, plumbing, pest control, home service business owners, with uh, anywhere from one to many, many trucks. I think what what we all want to know is where do we even begin when you first have that thought of buying or selling? And take us back to the beginning. How'd you get into this?
2: I have been self-employed my entire adult life. I've bought, sold, ran service companies. Uh, As you mentioned, I also bought, ran, and sold a heating and air company. My son actually bought me out of that business, so he is still in the business today. My office, although I'm not there today, my office is inside his office, so I still hear the uh, trials and tribulations of owning a heating and air company firsthand. I've been a broker for probably 15 years or so, and so I help other people buy and sell businesses in addition to myself, After I bought and uh, went to sell my heating and air company, I realized that there wasn't a lot of people that was helping kind of smaller market is what it's classified as uh, home service companies. You know, if you have a company doing $20 million, you're probably getting calls every day from somebody wanting to buy you. But if you're doing $2 million in sales, the calls aren't as frequent or aren't as serious. And so I realized that there was kind of a gap there. So I at the time I was selling everything, bars, restaurants, uh, gas stations, flower shops, you name it, I sold it. And when I identified that kind of gap in the market, I got rid of every listing I had, so I'm going to do just heating and air and trades. and uh, started doing that probably four and a half years ago. Initially just in Florida, I'm based in Florida. Then I got a listing in Georgia and then the Carolinas, and then I became nationwide. And I've been fortunate that the last four years, I've averaged 20 companies a year that we've been able to sell. So there's nobody in the middle market that does as many deals as I do. And I, I'm I'm blessed to work with incredible people from a buyer and seller standpoint, and the market has been good as well. So that's kind of my two-minute clip of how I got here.
1: Who's your ideal client? There's you know HVAC companies of all different sizes when listening here today. Who... Who do you typically work with and and why did you end up in that specific, you know, target market?
2: Yeah, you know, the bulk of the sales that I do are probably a million and a half to say eight million in sales. And part of is because those are the people that need my help. Um, at the end of the day, you know, it, once again, if you're doing 20, 25 million dollars in sales, there's enough people trying to buy you. You don't need to find somebody to promote your business. But if you're a smaller company or in a smaller market, you probably don't know what you're doing. And that was the reality of me selling my first business. I was lucky. Uh, I think it it didn't get messed up because there's a lot of liability that comes with selling a business. And most people only do it one time. And so they don't know what to do. They don't know where to go. They don't know who to talk to with the private equity interest that's, that's coming to the marketplace too. Those are professional buyers. They've got professional teams that are coming in to buy your company. And for most people, you know they're kind of a deer in headlights. They don't even know what's going on. And all these accountants are telling them, here's the way it works. And here's what you have to do. And and you can't argue with them because you don't know. And so I really get to be the advocate for those people, which I love. I do, I do a lot of companies over 10 million in sales as well. But really, the bulk of what I do is that, once again, a million and a half to 8 million, because I think one, I enjoy, those are the people I enjoy working with. To me, it's so absolutely incredible. These you know, sellers that have run companies for 20 or 30 years, they're technician turned owners. They've employed people in their community. They've raised their family. They've taken care of people. It's to me, it's the blue collar story. And I love that. And those people oftentimes, and there's a few that aren't, but oftentimes are incredible people to work with as well. And uh, so, so I really enjoy, I, I, I'm, I'm one of the fortunate ones to get to say, I I enjoy working with who I get to work with and enjoy getting up and going to work every day.
1: And so, these 1 to 8 million dollar companies this is their first time going through this is it typical for them to be contacted first from your experience or is it more that they start thinking succession planning their kids don't want to go into the industry you know how is what's that first step usually look like
2: you know i think the last 2 years has changed that a little bit because there's been so much acquisition in the space that you've got to have your head in the sand not to hear about all the acquisitions going on. Any conference you go to, they're talking about it. Any magazine you go to, they're writing about it. Any supply house you're in, you hear about somebody who was bought or sold. So I think that's the first is, is hearing what's going on in the market. And then the search becomes, well, what do you do? What are the next steps? I try to put a ton of information out there through my YouTube channel, through LinkedIn, through Facebook, because once again, most people don't know where to go. And so I try to be an information resource where whether they work with me or work with somebody else, at least they go kind of find out what's going on. Because I can tell you, I hear so many, so many buyers come to me and they'll call me about a listing that I've got and where it's priced. and, And they'll say, oh, I bought three of them for half that price. Well, I'm not here to rip anybody off, and, and and so I'm not the guy that says a company's worth one million. Let's price it at ten million and see if we can get it. I'm I'm tr- tracking the market daily, and so looking at comp data and where companies should be. And so to me, it's horrible to think that somebody worked their entire life. And because they didn't know who to talk to or where to go from a valuation standpoint, they didn't know what their business was worth. And when that first buyer came up and said, I'll give you X amount, whether it's 500,000, a million, 10 million, whatever that dollar figure is, they accepted it because they didn't they didn't have an argument to have.
0: One thing that really struck with me is you mentioned the gap in that second, third tier of HVC companies that don't know where to go, don't know if... There even an option, right, for this opportunity. My question to you, and, and and you mentioned part of it in saying you want to be the informational resource, right? You develop YouTube videos collateral that makes it a very handholding experience, I imagine. I mean, I, mean, I see your website and it's very straightforward what you do. My question is more in, as far as what makes you find that potential? Like you see you're in the market every day. What makes you say, This company, you know, there's potential, they're small, but like, I see the potential in you.
2: Yeah, great question, Sebastian. And so, you know, I I start with kind of saying who's not in that group. And I've done a video and I talk about it a lot. I, I, unfortunately, and and I joked with Lauren when we talked the other day, I, I get to tell a lot of people their baby's ugly. And it's a horrible conversation for me to have. And I say that jokingly to make light of it, but it's not. Most people, myself included, your business is your baby. Your kids are raised in the office. The community, that's all they know. You sponsor every football, soccer, baseball team, and that, that's your life. And then you come to me after 30 years, and I say there's no value. There's nothing. Nobody's going to buy your business. and that's a, It's a horrible conversation to have. By doing, giving out the information, I'm trying to prevent that from happening because really the hardest business for me to sell, and it's almost impossible is the one man or one woman or two man, two woman operation, because for the most part, it's not really a business. It's a high paying job. And for those who that's what they want, that's fantastic. You've made an incredible living and you can do that in the trades. If you want to be the term I hear all the time, chuck in the truck, And it's just you and no headache and no overhead and you want to drive around and fix air conditioners. Fantastic. But then don't come to me 30 years later and say this was my retirement plan. I need you to sell it for me. Because at the end of the day, Sebastian, nobody calls me and says, hey, I would love a job where I can work in attics for 14 hours a day, and then I can go home and do paperwork for six hours a night, and then I can return phone calls and not sleep at all and get up and do it again the next day. Nobody calls me looking for that, that, that dream work. And so buyers are looking for businesses that they can manage. And that's where, obviously, a company like Search King comes in, helping them grow their business so that they can put other people in vans or in trucks and increase that value of the business because that's really what a buyer's going for. So it's more of, it's not who I can help. We start with eliminating who I can't help. And so I try to give the information so if you're five years or 10 years from retirement and you're hearing my video or hearing this podcast or reading an article or doing something and you hear me saying, you don't have a sellable business that you can do something today so that you do have that sellable business. So now as the listener,
1: I'm thinking, oh boy, if if I called Patrick, I would do anything for him not to describe my baby as ugly and <laughs> all the work I've put in for 30 years to, to to end when I stop working. So our customer, they're five, 10 years away, they're not, you know, they're not ready yet. But what is it that you're looking for that makes a small business a great candidate for a sale in your mind?
2: You know, there's really four things that I preach to people, and I everywhere I go and speak, every podcast that I've ever been on, every article that I write, I talk about these four things. And the first one is one staying away from new construction. I know there's a lot of business, there's a lot of money to be made in new construction now, but most general contractors are not loyal. And if they are, they're loyal to you, the seller. So the minute you sell the business and walk out the door, the loyalty leaves. Also, you hear people talking about a potential slowdown in the economy. Well, if that happens, new construction typically gets large first. And so staying away from that new construction yo-yo, because most buyers don't like it, The second thing is really building a business on service and repair. Buyers love repeat customers. They love maintenance agreements where a customer's paying for their loyalty and paying you to come back and take care of their system. And you or your technician can spend time in the customer's home, develop a relationship with your company and the customer, deliver more value, all those types of things. The third thing is not treating your business like it's your personal checking account. As small business owners, we're told our whole lives to minimize taxes, minimize taxes, minimize taxes. And so oftentimes, when somebody sends me their books, they'll call me and say, I'm doing $2 million in sales. I'm making $400,000. I'll say, Great, send me your tax return. The tax return looks like it's from a different company. It's not even, it couldn't even be the same company I was talking about because it's showing a million dollars in sales and they're losing money. And I'll call them up and say, I thought we were making $400,000. Wink, wink, we are, but you know, I'm a small business owner and I'm doing what I can to save taxes. And I'm all for being creative in your accounting. So I'm not here to say you shouldn't take advantage of what the IRS guidelines say. But if you're looking to sell your business, you've got to put yourself in a buyer's shoes. If I come to you, Lauren, and say, I've got this incredible business for you to buy, it's making $400,000 a year. We're asking $1.6 million for it, and I give you the report. The report shows they've lost money the last four years. You're going to look at me like I've got two heads. So why in the world is Patrick wasting my time bringing me a company that's losing money telling me they're making money? Included in that is a bank won't lend on it. Obviously, you guys are in Canada and here in the US, we've got SBA loans. So the government will, will back these banks lending to small business owners, which is incredible. If you already own a company right now, many banks will do it, no money down. So you could buy a company doing $2 million, $3 million, $5 million a year in sales with no money out of pocket. The government guarantees it, but they've got to see a profit on the books. So automatically, the The buyer who needs bank financing is out out of the equation if you're not showing a profit. So so making sure you've got clean books and records is super important. And then the final thing, and this is more for heating and air and plumbing, and it could be the same for pest control, is getting yourself out of the van or out of the truck. If you're the best salesman, best technician, best bookkeeper, best everything your company has and your customers only know you, you don't have a business, you've got a job. And so a buyer's looking for separation separation from you from the business. So when you leave, they're not worried that all the customers are going to leave with you. And so getting yourself out. Also, most of the sellers that I meet with that are doing a million dollars in sales or less are doing a million dollars in sales or less and it's the owner's fault. And when I say the owner's fault, I don't mean that negative. It's the owner's such a great technician. They don't believe anybody else can do what they do. They don't believe that anybody else can install an air conditioner the way they can do it. They don't believe anybody could fix a pipe the way they can do it. They don't trust anybody. So their, their income is always going to be capped at the amount of work that they physically can do themselves. So getting themselves out of the van and trusting other people to be able to do the work allows that business to grow. And then once again, you can get a company like yours to make the phone ring because the phone ringing doesn't always solve the problem. You have to have somebody there to do the work. And if there's nobody there to do the work, there's no sense making the phone ring. And so, you know, that's the thing where those four things, if you do that, your business is worth more every single day, every single month, every single year.
1: I look at, at like sort of benchmarks. Where's like a benchmark or, or something that we can point to on, you mentioned service and repair. I take that uh to the to maintenance contracts where do you see you know how do you value maintenance contracts is it the number of maintenance contracts is it the longevity of those maintenance contracts lifetime value of them how do you measure maintenance contracts in this you
2: know it's a combination so there used to be years ago you'd see when people were buying companies they'd actually pay you based on the maintenance contracts x amount of dollars per contract is the value of the business i don't see that at all now But I can tell you a company that has a thousand maintenance agreements is worth way more money than a company that has 10. And the rationale there is a company that has a thousand is able to maintain their employees longer. It's able to deepen the relationship with a customer. It's able to talk about ancillary services, whether it's indoor air quality or better filtration or whatever that may be, it keeps their guys busy or girls busy all year long. And so automatically by focusing on the maintenance and the maintenance customer, it makes that net value of the business go up. So it's not a one agreement equals $100 or $1,000. But I can tell you, if I look at a business who's who's spending way more money in marketing, there's a reason they're doing it is because they need somebody new to sell something to every day. And as that marketing spend comes down a little bit, and it's more about service and retention, then that, that marketing spend is for pure growth not to maintain the business, it's a completely different business model. And so a company that
1: is maintaining their customers and using marketing for growth, what percentage of revenue do you look for or recommend,
2: if you do, that they spend on marketing and growth? What I see in a well-run company is typically 10%. It's kind of an average figure, maybe 12 maybe 8 you know depending depending on the size of the company if you're a million and a half dollar company trying to get to 3 million you may need to be spending more if you're a 10 million dollar company keeping everything flowing along you may be able to spend a little bit less because keep in mind longevity of the company And taking good care of the customers that repeat and that referral business is going to be inclusive in there as well, and that's typically not aligned to marketing spend. So when most people are paying for referrals, giving customers a gift for a referral, that type of stuff, they oftentimes don't align that to marketing. So that doesn't increase that marketing budget where it's actual cold marketing is what I classify it as. You work with in small markets, medium
1: markets, uh, heavily dense markets. How does market or location
2: impact valuation? Price competition from buyers. So when you look at major metropolitan areas, Atlanta, Georgia, uh, Orlando, Florida, um, you know, places in Arizona, these buyers are really trying to get in those areas. And there's only so many companies for sale. So it's driving up the prices there. Um, aside from those key areas, it's pretty even across the board.
1: Let's go over to what we do a little bit, which is making sure our customers are visible on Google, showing up at the top in the ad space. How do you, what do you do a, or what does a prospective buyer do as far as they're uh, evaluating a company's Google
2: presence? What do you look for? I can tell you a buyer is going to do the same thing that I do. When somebody reaches out to me and says, hey, I'm in, interested in talking to you about selling my company. First thing I do is look them up on Google. If you've got three Google reviews, I can tell the size of company you are already. Typically, it's not going to be a big, well-run company. And if it is, that's even scarier because you haven't made any attempt to keep up with the market. I can tell you all buyers, when I send them the packet of information after they've signed a non-disclosure, we've jumped through all those hoops. When I release who the company is, one of the first phone calls that they say to me, they're going to say, I looked them up on Google and it looks like a good company. Or how long have they been in business? I looked them up on Google and I can't even find them. I don't even see any reviews. So it's a double-edged sword. It's, you know, is there enough to make them feel like they're a good quality company and, and are visible? Because at the end of the day, that's what a buyer's buying. They're buying that visibility. They're buying that reputation. They're buying all that that comes with it. And if that doesn't exist, and it takes time to make that exist, they, that's going to have an impact on price because now they've got to spend the effort and the resources to get those Google reviews to make those things happen. And obviously, if you only run X amount of calls per day, you only can get X amount of Google reviews per day. So they're looking for three years worth, not three days worth. And so it's it's extremely important, really is, from my perspective and from a buyer's perspective because it's at the end of the day, it's third-party validation people look for me. When they look me up, they're going to look on Google. Do I have any reviews? Has anybody said anything about me, even though it's confidential? And so I have to be kind of weird in how I ask for a Google review. But, but at the same point in time, they're going to look. Do I exist? Is there a presence of me online? I mean, it's, it's, it's a third-party validation that every buyer is going to absolutely look for. And it weighs heavily. It really does.
0: I just think of, about the Google reviews comment that you make, Patrick, and I combine that with the companies that don't fit the criteria, and I and I see a direct correlation because it, it, at Searchings, for example, you see our our listing, and you're going to see thousand reviews. I think it's around thirteen hundred right now, and you're going to see that the people that the reviews mention are. Scatter, right? They're different people that they work with. I think that that is something you can definitely identify from Google reviews if they're a one man shop, for example, because it's always going to be the same name popping up, right? And right.
2: I think that. I'm going to cut you off there, Sebastian. I've got a small company in Florida listed currently, and it's so weird it's in Sebastian, Florida. So it just works out well for this conversation. Ah. So, so it's a small company. And um, had a call with the seller yesterday or with a buyer yesterday, and they said, does does the seller still turn wrenches? No, the seller told me he doesn't. Well, I looked at his Google reviews, and every review mentions him by name. So when they look at that, they're they're not only counting the number, a buyer's actually looking at the reviews to see, is the owner running the business? Or is the owner in the field turning wrenches and when that owner's no longer there because a certain customer likes to deal with the owners. And if you're a bigger company and you buy this smaller company and the owner's not out fixing that air conditioner anymore, are they going to stay with you? Or are they going to go with a smaller company down the street that's cheaper and that they can deal directly with the owner? And that's and that's a real risk that a buyer has to face. So I, I didn't mean to cut you off, but you're 100% accurate and it identifies that and not only – Do I see that when I look at it? But a buyer does too, when they read that review and everyone is, Sebastian was great. Sebastian did a good job. Sebastian was on time. Sebastian's been taking care of me for 25 years. Sebastian, Sebastian, Sebastian. That's what a buyer is going to look at. Let me throw this at you. You look at a company, they have,
1: which company is more valuable? Let's assume everything else is equal. One company has 500 maintenance contracts. And, and the other company has 5,000 Google reviews. This is, by the way, a point of contention inside Search Kings amongst our team. We debate it all the time. Which is a more valuable company to sell based on, you're the expert. So, company with 5,000 reviews has no maintenance agreements? Unknown. Let's just say an unimpressive amount of maintenance agreements. Let's go and, unimpressive. And the company
2: with 500 maintenance agreements has an unimpressive amount of Google reviews. Correct. Whew, that's... That's probably a coin flip. Wow. Because if there's social validation that this company is big and takes care of its customers and does a good job, to me, that's extremely important. Flip that coin. And if you have 500 customers who are paying you every year for their loyalty, and when if they're paying you $200 a year to be a maintenance customer, if their air conditioner breaks, they're calling the guy, they're paying $200 a year first to have a shot at it. So so they're paying for their own loyalty. So, you know, that's that's a, there's going to be a lot of other factors. Just that, if they were sitting on my desk, I couldn't say this one's going to be more, this one's going to be less without looking at the other factors that go with it. But I think they're equally as important. Yeah, I well, didn't help the argument in the office, unfortunately. But
0: no, you just made it better. You just made yeah. it better.
2: Yeah, I, uh, I, I would think equally important because more and more people, that's, that's the first place when they get the packet that I send them, the first thing they do is go online and look them up. And yet four years ago, that question wasn't even relevant.
1: Valuations uh, of companies, what have you seen since pre-COVID now? What's your prediction moving forward?
2: So my crystal ball works as well as yours does. So let me let me uh, <laughs> let me say that as a safety net. Um, you know the market has been crazy the last two and a half years. The private equity push um, has really driven up valuations, and they've been going up and going up. At some point, higher interest rates, five dollar gas, inflation through the roof is going to have an impact on that. I think it's you know, it's when it happens. Is it six months or six years from now? And that's the magic question. At some point, they have to level off because from an operational standpoint, the money being paid for these companies, you can't buy them and operate them at these crazy multiples that they're paying for. And so at some point when private equity goes to exit, which it always does, they typically look at a three to five year model. And when they start selling medical parts or, you know, durable goods or whatever the next hot thing is for them to go to, they're going to start selling these heating and air companies They've been acquiring, and when more people are selling than buying, prices are going to come down. At some point, it has to happen. That being said, I think there's always going to be value in the trades. Why I bought a heating and air company and why part of the reason I switched my practice, my wife and I have had money and we've had no money. We've always had cold air in the summer and warm air in the winter. There's certain things people won't do without now, now there's a few a minor section of the population that it doesn't phase them. It's ninety eight degrees outside and one hundred percent humidity in Florida, and they're gonna leave the window open and they're okay with it. But but for most people, they're gonna pay to get that fixed. Now will it slow down the change out market and the growth market and the construction market? Absolutely, I think it will. But if your air conditioner breaks and times are lean, you're gonna give up the lawn guy before you give up the air conditioner guy.
0: So let's say somebody. Is thinking about doing this five years from now, right? Whatever the bucket they feel in, maybe they're a one-man shop, they need to work on hiring, uh, right, and diversifying their business a little bit more. What would be your first suggestion, whatever bucket they're in in terms of getting this started or
2: getting this process started for them? Clean the books. Uh, You know, the if I'm looking at first things, clean the books. Because that takes time. Get yourself out of the van would probably be second. And you do that by focusing on service and repair. So those, they tie together, but get the books straightened out first because many people don't even know their numbers um, and get that part straightened out first and then start making the phone ring and have people that can run the calls.
1: So much here for our customers to think about. For many of our customers, they may be thinking of this Only at night when it's keeping them up. But the rest of the day, they're super busy. What's your... How does it work when someone contacts you at business modification group? Is it, do you offer initial consulting? Should they call you
2: once they're really serious? What's what Call me you ahead found? of time. No, I, I'd rather them call me three years ahead of time. And so we can work together on getting them there. I, no charge. Call me anytime. My number is everywhere. My email is everywhere. They can reach me with any questions that they have. Start earlier. Because here, selfishly, I get paid a commission when I sell a business. I'd rather sell a business for $8 million than $2 million selfishly, if I'm looking at that. And if the ultimate goal is to sell it someday, let's start working together now to build it to where it is. And I can start providing valuations now and check in. I have some people who check in every year, send me a tax return. Here's where I'm at now. What do we think it's worth? Great. Let's go to the next one. So keeping yourself informed and, and educated along the way is the best step. And I'll do it no charge. So the only thing I charge for is when I sell a business, I get paid. Aside from that, everything else is free and I'm, I'm happy to give out as much information as I can because everybody wins when we do that. HVAC, clearly
1: uh, for our customers listening, I'm sure that uh, some of them will have their interest peak. Do you work in any other industries?
2: Yeah, I would do plumbing and electrical as well. bulk of what I do is heating and air, probably 80 uh, percent, um, and we're starting to expand more on the plumbing and electrical. I, I owned a heating and air and that was kind of where I went. And now we're adding ancillary services. We, we do a lot of plumbing, you know, heating and air companies that also own plumbing and electrical. So that's inclusive in the business. And I uh, just listed this week uh, a pure plumbing company. So I do some, just not a ton. This has been tremendously interesting and hopefully helpful for
1: our customers. Uh, Patrick, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, we look forward to keeping in touch with you. Thank you both so much for having me on. Have a fantastic day. I appreciate it. That concludes another episode of Stories from the Field. Thank you to Patrick Lang for joining us and giving us insight into selling a successful HVAC company. Thanks for listening to Stories from the Field, brought to you by Search Games. We are here to help your home service business grow and dominate in your community. Stay tuned for more episodes as we learn what it takes to scale and succeed your business.